Welcome to What Christians Should Know, hosted by Dr. Elijah Sadoffel. This podcast equips you with clarity and meaningful answers about God, the Bible, and your Christian life. Now, here's Dr. Sadoffel. Good morning, class. Good to see everyone on this rainy May day. So we'll turn again to where we left off last week in Romans 1, chapter 1. Give everyone a few moments and we'll pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for those whom we have called to gather here today to meditate on and study your word. And as always, precious Lord, we entreat you to humble our hearts and illuminate our minds so the scales of misunderstanding may be removed and we will see you, Lord Jesus, for who you truly are. Open our hearts, speak to us, and teach us your word as we admit, Holy Spirit, that you are the ultimate divine teacher of all spiritual things. Be with us and allow your presence to overflow with us here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so if everything goes according to plan, this morning will be uh, likely when we finish Romans 1, chapter 1, which says, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So this morning we're going to focus on that word, gospel. Now, knowing what the gospel is, is kind of a bread and butter doctrinal term of Christianity. So someone please tell me, what is the gospel? The good news. That's the simplest definition of the gospel. It comes from a word in Greek, which simply means the good news. And this morning, we're going to break down, dissect, and analyze what the gospel is. So what Paul writes is that he was set apart for the gospel of God. It's not a gospel of men. It's not a gospel of philosophers. It's the gospel of God, meaning that it's God's message that comes from God that is authored by God. As a result, the gospel never loses its power because God's the one who gave us the gospel. And the gospel never loses its relevance because it's backed by divine authority. And this word gospel, this is the first time this word is mentioned in the epistles. Once we leave the four gospels and acts, here in Romans 1.1 is the first time the word gospel is mentioned. So we know what the gospel is, the good news. What is the good news? Amen. That Jesus Christ died, and now all those who believe in him shall not perish, but shall have eternal life. Now, that is in essence what the gospel is. But to truly appreciate the weight, the depth, and the meaning of how good the good news really is, we have to understand the law first. That's how God did it. God revealed the law in the Old Testament 
then he reveals the gospel or the good news in the new. So in order to have a refined biblical understanding of what the gospel is, we must first understand the law. And when I say the law, I'm referring to the Mosaic law given in the beginning of the Bible. So here's what the Mosaic law did. The Mosaic law, it exposed sin. It told us what sin is. The Mosaic law also increased our awareness of sin. Because when God said, thou shalt and thou shalt not, people could now look at themselves in the mirror and realize that they were sinning. And the, what the law also did is it frustrated people because the law exposed a human being's inability to keep the law. Because in essence, what is the entire Old Testament? The entire Old Testament tells us even the really, really good saints, good in, in quotes, even the really, really good ones were unable to fulfill the requirements of the law. The law told us what sin is. Now, in order to understand the beauty, the sweetness, the excellence of the gospel, we have to understand how depraved and how destructive sin is. Now, Martin Lloyd-Jones gave the, as he always does, he makes big ideas ridiculously simple. And he said that the, the simplest way to define sin is a failure to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 says that we human beings were made for God's glory, which means if we're not glorifying God, we're revoking the manufacturer's design for us, and now we are sinning. So the simplest definition is that sin is a failure to glorify God. And even more than that, this is what sin does. Sin deludes people into now living a self-satisfied life where they are no longer glorifying God, they are glorifying themselves. What sin now deludes people to do is to turn their back on God, turn their back on the church, turn their back on God's word, and now do what is right in their own eyes. So, that's the general definition of what sin is, but it's even more specific than that. You have sins that are committed through deeds in the things that we do. These are sins of commission. So when God says, thou shalt or thou shalt not, and you break those commandments, that is now a sin of commission. You commit it. Because 1 John tells us that sin is lawlessness. But it also means not only the things that you do, that you commit, it's also the things that you think. When I first began truly understanding what Jesus was saying on the Sermon on the Mount, I got angry. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives people the command. He says, be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Excuse me, Jesus? You're telling me to be perfect 
like a heavenly divine father? I can never do that. Jesus says, you're a murderer if you think something evil about someone. Jesus says, you're an adulterer if you even think a lustful thought in your mind. All of that, having a... The word, the idea of a thought crime began in the Bible because thought crimes, according to the Holy Sovereign Lord, is sin. But it's more than that. Sin is not only doing that which is wrong. Sin is also failing to do that which is right. James chapter 4. But it's more than that. Because we, beloved, are not sinners as a function of what we do. We are sinners as a function of who we are. David in Psalm 51, David who was a type of Christ, a man after God's own heart. He says, David says in Psalm 51.5 that I was born in iniquity, born in sin. Now the sin that he commits comes out of his nature. And this is why Romans 5.12 says that because of the sin of Adam, that lawlessness, that transgression, that nature of sin was transmitted to every human being since our first parents dwelled in the Garden of Eden. But it's, there's still more than that. The story of sin is not over. Because we are sinners as a function of those things we do wrong, we don't even know about. Because there are sins of ignorance. At the end of Psalm number 19, David says, Cleanse thou me, O Lord, from my secret faults. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the human heart is trustworthy. No. That the human heart is reliable? No. That the human heart, above all else, above every other adjective language gives us, the human heart is deceitful above all else. When someone tells me something like, I'm just doing what I feel in my heart is okay, I step away because their heart is deceiving them. When people want to get a physical, What they never do is sign their own physical. They never take their own pulse. They never take their own blood pressure. They never examine themselves. They go to see a doctor and have things measured. They are examined by someone else and are then told, you are healthy or not. We, as fallen sinners, can never look at ourselves in the mirror and say, I'm okay because that is our human heart deceiving ourselves. But there's still more bad news. There is still more bad news. When we understand who God is, that God is sovereign, holy, just, perfect, true, and we understand that sin is a failure to glorify God, that means we are sinning even when we do the right thing the right way, but for the wrong reason. If I get up there and I preach the right thing, and I preach the right way from the Word of God, 
but my intent in preaching is to make me look good, sin, guilty of eternal condemnation, that is cosmic treason. When a mother looks at a little baby suckling at her bosom and looks at that child and looks in their warm brown eyes and loves that child and cares for him or her, but that mother loves that baby more than God, that is cosmic treason guilty of a, the just death in hell forever. That is the sin problem. And the sin problem is a big deal because Romans 3.23 tells us that all have fallen short of the glory of God and six, Romans 6.23 tells us the just penalty of that sinfulness is eternal condemnation in hell. The good news is good news because there's really, really bad news. Now here comes the good news. And this is what's different now in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, you had reflections. You had foreshadowing of God forgiving people's sins. But what happens now in the New Testament is that there is a revealing of God's righteousness through the work of what Jesus Christ has done. Number one, Jesus dies on the cross to make an atonement, meaning we no longer pay the penalty for our own sins. Jesus takes our place on the cross and dies for us. Jesus' atonement also sets us free from the power of sin in our lives, not so that we will ever be sinless and perfect, but so that sin will not Rain, but there's still more to it. Because no one can ever enter into the pearly gates of heaven based upon their own merit. The only way someone can walk through those pearly gates is if they have a robe of perfect, pristine, white, divine, holy righteousness. So what does Jesus do? He lives a life of perfect righteousness for us. So when we say, Lord Jesus, I yield before you. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am a sinner. He says, come to me and I will give you rest. He now takes our filthy, polluted garments. He throws them away. He burns them and then gifts us with his robes of pristine white righteousness. Now we are accepted in the eyes of God, not as a function of who we are, not as a function of what we have done, but as a function of what God has done for us. And all of that, being able to be an heir of everything Christ has done for us, is acquired by us, not by us doing anything. It's by faith. It is a free unmerited gift of God. Now, when you understand sin and the radical weight of the dire eternal consequences sin has and what God has already done for us, the gospel is almost too good to be true. 
it, it, it doesn't make any sense. It's so good, but it's also the most truly true truth in the entire universe. And God did all of that, that we may now cling to the hem of Jesus' garments by one simple thing, by trusting him, by believing that we could never be nor ever do better than what God has already accomplished through his son. And that is the good news. That is the gospel. Trusting in what God has already done for us. Now, when we understand the law and now understand the gospel, when someone now were to reject the gospel, there's going to be three possible reasons why the gospel is rejected. Number one is, is ignorance. They don't understand how dangerous or precarious of a position we are in because of the weight, because of the utter dire consequences of sin. Number two, in, in other words, someone were to think they're spiritually rich. Someone were to think they're okay. Someone were to think they can actually stand in the presence of God and say, God, really on the inside, I'm all right. Another reason why someone may reject the gospel is because they may have an inadequate understanding of their sinfulness. And this is very readily appropriate to our modern era because some people actually trust themselves. Some people actually look in a spiritual mirror and say, at the end of the day, I'm okay. But when a person compares themselves to themselves, that's a false gospel. We must realize that we are creatures and God is infinite, divine, and heavenly. The primary characteristic that describes the essence of God is his holiness. He is radically and totally other. The third reason why someone may reject the gospel, I just alluded to, people may not understand who God actually is. The reality is, church, there are some folks in the world, God does not want to have a picnic and give people a hug because they're living a life saturated in darkness and a holy God finds sin abhorrent. And the just thing to do is to judge it. So here now is how the gospel is radically and totally different than religion. When, if, when so, if someone were to say, all of religious truth claims, all of religion is hocus pocus, I immediately disagree. But if someone were to say, 99% of religious truth claims hocus pocus, I agree, because there's the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is true, everything else is hogwash. Everything else is a fairy tale and a lie, because everything else is based on one simple principle, what I do, what I can accomplish, what I can labor. Only the gospel, only that is not only true, but only the gospel tells us what God has done for us, and we are utterly helpless without the Son. Every other religion works on the same premise. That premise is, this is a, a gross oversimplification, but this is how the, all religions fit into a general paradigm. Every other religion in the world 
Step one is you meet a great teacher or you have some otherworldly spiritual experience. That's followed by behavior modification. That's followed by lifestyle reform. And then that person now crosses their fingers and hopes that when they die, they'll make it to wherever. They'll make it to where, wherever they've been promised. But here's the problem with that. Whenever you have a religion based on works or what you do, who's not to say whoever you meet when you die will weigh what you've done badly more than your good? So that's the lie that told. Say it again? That's the, that's the main lie that they told. Your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. Exactly. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says the holy and just God finds our good works to be abhorrent. He finds them to be as filthy rags. In a religion where your eternal destiny is based on what you do, you have no assurance because you may be good one morning and then horrible the next day. There's no sense of certainty, and the best thing you can do is have a blind hope in and of yourself while you spend your entire life deluding yourself. If religion in general saved anyone, it would be good news. If religion in general had any means to deal with sin, had any means to deal with our nature and what we do, it would be good news. But 99% of religious truth claims are complete nonsense. And there is only one gospel that deals with the sin problem. A religion based on works is comfortless because the requirements are burdensome and can never be lifted. But let's, eat, let's play devil's advocate now. Let's say you're someone who says, I don't even want to deal with religion. I'm going to be an atheist. I'm going to be an agnostic. I'm going to eat, drink, be merry, and do as I please. That now means, Mr. and Mrs. Atheist, that now your life is meaningless. Because that means you can live a life as good as Mother Teresa, or you can be as evil as Adolf Hitler, and where do you both go? The same place. You may think you're free to do as you please here and now on earth, but there's no law, because there's no lawgiver. Now, if you're good, now if you're evil, those essentially have no moral value because no one's judging it, and no one gave it in the first place. So even if you were trying to reject God, what in essence you now have is an eternity and an existence which is now meaningless. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ is good because it tells us that God is there. It tells us that God is real. Therefore, we and all of our reality has meaning. It also tells us what God has done to save us. God loved us. He's the one who found us. We did not find God. God died for our sins, and he did all that to reconcile us. If anyone were to ever back me in a corner and say, is Christianity a religion of works? I would only respond in the affirmative if I qualify that by saying, yes, Christianity is a religion of works based on God's works, based on what he 
has done. He is the one who wrought salvation from start to finish. Now look how, how empowering this is. When we realize that we are justified, we are declared righteous as a function of what God has done, this means we are never in danger of losing our salvation. We are never more accepted. We are never frowned upon. We never gain our standing with God because our reconciliation isn't based on us. It's based on Jesus Christ. Now we live a life not in doubt. Now we live a life with full assurance knowing the one who guarantees our salvation isn't us. Listen, if the gospel was me, I would leave right now. If the gospel relied on what I do, what I feel, what I say, all hope is lost because human beings waver. Human beings are fallible. But because the gospel says we are saved as a function of who God is and what he has done, that now gives us eternal confidence and assurance. That's why we have to be like children. Exactly. I forget who said it. It was a theologian who basically said, at the end of the day, Christianity is people who are spiritually poor coming at the throne, at, at the foot of God's throne as beggars. That essentially is the entire Christian life. In faith, we extend our arms. In faith, we extend our open vessels and say, Lord, have mercy upon me and fill me up. When we deny that we, that we are incapable of, of uh, saving ourselves at all. The gospel also answers the big questions that are entertained in life. People ask themselves, is there a God? The gospel says, yes, there is. People ask themselves, who is God? And the gospel says, Jesus Christ. People ask the question, what am I? What is man? The Bible tells us we are creatures made in the image of God, designed to glorify him. People say, why is man? Why are we here? The gospel says to honor and glorify God. People ask, why is the world broken? The gospel says, because of sin. People ask, what's God's plan to fix the world? Or how do we fix the brokenness in reality? The answer is Jesus Christ. So now, that is the gospel. That is the good news. So Paul in Romans 1.1 says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So now when we take a step back, Paul introduces this, epi this epistle, saying that he's a servant, but more than that, saying he's an apostle, but more than that, saying he's separated for the gospel of God. He essentially says, I'm a servant of Christ Jesus, separated by him, and am sent to proclaim this message. And because Paul now is an apostle, commissioned and sent by Christ, he is commissioned and has the authority to relay every other verse in Romans that follows after chapter 1, verse 1. And when we zoom out even further and analyze the fact that the Apostle Paul used to be the man called Saul. We have to appreciate how God works. 
because God allowed the man called Saul to blaspheme for so long, to act as an agent against the kingdom of God for so long. And he uses now that man to be the one to take the gospel to the world. Can I explain to you God's plan? No. Can I search the mind of God and make sense of this? No. The only thing I can tell you, church, is that in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says he was separated to God from the womb. Meaning God, for whatever reason, allowed the man called Saul to live that life, to now turn him around and now use him as a vessel to glorify God, to now truly fulfill the design and purpose for which he was created. Whom God calls, he keeps. Okay, there's a natural pause there as we now finish and encapsulated the gospel message. We'll stop there. Are there any questions? Yes. Right. Right, so there's the doctrine of unconditional election, meaning God never chooses anyone to be saved based upon any inherent worth because everyone is the same. Everyone is guilty and condemned. So the fact that God um, separates anyone from the womb is an act of grace, and the one whom God shows mercy on is essentially the ones whom God will have mercy on. So the just thing to do if God were only operating based upon his justice, no person would ever be saved. But as a function of his grace, he in his sovereign will decides to show some unmerited favor to which we all say, yea and amen, Lord Jesus. So the short answer to your question is, no one deserves to be saved, which is why God saves sinners as a function of his grace alone. Okay, let's pray. We thank you, O Lord, for the time to hear about and digest your gospel message. We know this is a core foundational truth of the Christian faith and entreat you, Divine Spirit, to write this gospel message on our hearts that we may know, we may internalize, and be able to clearly and intelligently articulate this truth, knowing that your gospel, O Lord, saves because it's your message. Now give us the frame of mind and frame of heart to preach and proclaim this gospel message to all those, Lord Jesus, who seek you, that your kingdom and your name will be glorified. In the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more valuable resources, including a bookstore and online Bible study, visit wcsk.org.